Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Hello, I'm Dave Berry, and I'm fascinated by my next-door neighbour. His name is Neil Srinivasan, and he's a leading cardiologist. Now, whether it be taking our kids to the local park or watching Disney's The Lion King for the 12,000th time with them, I'm always left with more questions about his profession than I have answers. In The Doctor Next Door, I'll be asking Neil the burning questions that keep me up at night, dissecting medical myths under his watchful eye, and doing my utmost to learn more about an industry that is quite literally a matter of life and death. But this podcast isn't just about me feeding my own curiosity. Oh no, I want you to be involved as well. Let Neil be your Doctor Next Door too. If you have any questions or stories, send them along to doctoratnextdoorpod.com right now. Here we go. That'll be the doctor now. Neil! Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good, man. I love your hair. Thanks. It's looking good. This is what we need to put on our socials. Exactly. That way they will be lit, as I believe the kids say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Neil, I want to ask you something. Uh, We've been friends for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. We do this podcast together. I don't just ask this to anybody. I need to have a bond with someone before I go into this. (laughs) A bond greater than you will ever have with Brooklyn Dan. (laughs) Just want to get that out of the way, early doors. I want to talk about bins. And the influencer in your life. Because I always look to Phil at number one for which bins I should be putting out. Because every Wednesday is recycling, but every other Wednesday is household rubbish. So as I get up so early and leave for work, what I basically want to know is, am I inspiring you putting out the correct bins at the correct time? Well, you make a good point about influencers. I think you're my influencer, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> and that's the whole reason do. I brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Neil, on this edition of the podcast, I'd like to start by talking about something that we touched on way back in the first episode of Doctor Next Door, and that is Danish footballer Christian Eriksen. Many of us will recall those horrifying scenes during the Euros when he collapsed, and it is just fantastic that not only has he made a full recovery, but he's back playing football in arguably the toughest league in the world in the Premier League for Brentford Football Club. And I think not only football fans, Brentford fans, but people around the world were just so joyous to see him come on as a substitute. So I thought this would be a great time to kind of revisit what happened to Christian Eriksen. So what exactly is a cardiac arrest? What happened to him that day? So as we've talked about in episode one, Christian, I think, was just really unlucky. He was playing in the Euros and then suddenly his heart stopped beating fundamentally. What was amazing was the response of not only his 
teammates, but the whole, you know, medical team in Denmark um, and the fans indeed. And one of the key things with people who have a sudden cardiac arrest like that, where their heart goes into a lethal heart rhythm, it's not pumping and it's not pumping blood to the brain and you collapse and you're being starved of oxygen basically throughout your whole body, is the need for urgent resuscitation. So sudden cardiac death like this is, is or sudden cardiac arrests is the most common cause of death worldwide. Wow. And the sad thing about it is that most people don't get access to early defibrillation, so the ability to shock the heart out of uh, a lethal heart rhythm quickly, but also, you know, CPR, bystander CPR is so important. And he was very lucky in that people were able to resuscitate him very quickly. He, I believe he was almost conscious when he was being taken out of the stadium. Um, and then he went, obviously, to the local hospital in Copenhagen to have some investigations and tests. Uh, is this why we see the machines popping up in more rural areas now in like telephone boxes and stuff? That's a really good thing to see, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's not just rural areas that are important. If you go to train stations and bus stops and airports and things, yeah. all of these areas have a designated AED, automated uh, defibrillator area. And the reason for that is that they want them to be accessible to the public. If you see a member of the public who's collapsed, you'd hope that somebody knows how to do some degree of CPR, mm -hmm. chest compressions, and that if there is good signage, then there's excellent access to a defibrillator because the key to saving that person from a lethal heart rhythm is to put those pads on and shock. Mm -hmm. And the automated defibrillators that we have out in public and airports and you know, as you said, in villages and things, you just put them on, they talk to you, they tell you what to do, they do things automatically. Wow. So having access to them and some kind of first aid training, which, you know, I would encourage everybody to do, really is going to save lives. And it was the, the speed in which Christian was seen that, that saved his. Uh, now, we see him returning to playing football, which, as I say, is just wonderful. Uh, a device called an ICD has been implanted. Uh, that's what's helping him kind of make this return to football. What is an ICD? So an uh, ICD is an implantable cardioverted defibrillator. Basically, it's something that's inside the body or maybe outside the body in certain types of modern uh, ICDs which are implanted under the skin, called subcutaneous ICDs. And it basically listens to the heart, so it works out what the heart's doing and what rhythm it is. If the heart were to throw off a lethal heart rhythm, and we know that people who've had a lethal heart rhythm or had a cardiac arrest before are the exact people who are at risk of future events, mm -hmm. then this device will see that and immediately shock that person back to life wow. without the need for having, you know, a prolonged period with no blood to the brain, with resuscitation and the hope that, or the chances that, you know, you get a defibrillator in time. So he has one of those fitted in him. I'm not quite sure what type of defibrillator he has. It, most likely, I suspect, it's what's called a subcutaneous defibrillator, where the leads are not implanted inside the body. There's just something implanted under your sort of left uh, armpit, like a little box, and some wires plugged in under the skin, under your chest, below your nipple. So when the ICD does kick in, if it ever needed to, would Christian be aware of it, or would this all be going on without him knowing? It depends on the type of heart rhythm that causes the ICD to kick in. ICDs are designed to kick in for lethal heart rhythms and to save your life. But part of that design is that ICDs are extra cautious. They don't want to miss something. So occasionally you could be running really fast or something like that and the device would accidentally shock you or you could be going in a different type of rhythm. And that happens to a lot of my patients. And that you certainly feel. Yeah. The sort of oh, so it does, it's a jolt. You're it shocks awake. you. And, okay. the, and the description, you know, my patients say is like a horse kicking you in the chest. It's a really wow. you know, horrible feeling. Now... 
if he were to have another cardiac arrest like he did, you know, while playing football in the Euros, it's likely that the output of blood to his brain would be very low very quickly in, in lethal rapid heart rhythm. So most patients are not conscious of these events. Okay. And then they suddenly, you know, jolted back to life by the shock, a bit like when he was, you know, resuscitated on the football pitch itself. What will his quality of life be like now? Will, will anything have changed? I mean, obviously playing such a high performance sport, as I say, in the toughest football league in the world would lead me to think that, you know, it's going to be relatively normal again, thankfully. Yeah, well, I think the fact that he's back playing is a fantastic story, first of all. Mm. And I think the fact that he's back playing tells you that his doctors and he himself are sure that his heart actually hasn't had much of a hit from this event. So mm -hmm. he would have been screened extensively prior to this event. He would have been a super fit athlete, as we know, and he will have had a normal heart. And um, unfortunately, the majority of patients that we pick up like this, they often have a normal heart. So in someone like him, once he's had his cardiac arrest, if he's not had any significant damage long term to the heart and we do scans and we say, OK, there's not something abnormal with the heart, not an issue with scarring of the heart or some problem with the blood supply to the heart. Theoretically, he could return to a sort of normal level of exercise. Now, obviously, being an elite athlete, that changes things slightly because the level of exercise and the level of fitness is slightly higher. But clearly, they've made a decision and, and, and thought process with regard to you know, his physicians and himself that he should be well enough to go back to training and well enough to go back to playing, which we've seen recently. I was slightly kind of confused as to why he left into Milan. I presumed at the time, obviously, it was because he wasn't going to be able to continue to play football. We had a conversation privately where he, you were suggesting maybe he could continue to play football, but he'd have to drop down as far as leagues go um, just because of the intensity. But now we see him obviously playing in the Premier League. So this isn't an Inter Milan thing. This is playing in Italy in general. Is, yeah. is it the law there? Yeah, I think it's a, a regulation with regard to the Italian Federation. Okay. If he has one of these devices fitted, he's not actually allowed to play in Italy. But in certain other leagues, clearly in the Premier League, but also um, you know, in Holland, there's some players who have defibrillators fitted. You, you can actually play um, with one of these fitted in you. Because Daly Blind, who used to play for, for Manchester United, United right. is playing in the Dutch league. And, That's right. And he, and he has, has one of these fitted because right. he had a similar type of collapse and they put one of these in. Are these incidents leading to footballers or athletes in general being screened for heart problems? So almost all athletes have extensive medical tests and they're frequent. And almost all athletes who sign for you know the major clubs will have had an ECG. Uh -huh. They will have had an echocardiogram to look at their heart. They will have met a heart doctor for screening as part of that. And some of them may have had more extensive investigations as part of that. So the reason they're playing is that you know, they're fundamentally super fit individuals, but uh -huh. they've also got you know, normal hearts and normal ECGs. So all athletes that play in, in the football league in England, for instance, will have got, got screened. Um, and he will have obviously got screened as well, which shows you the sort of level of bad luck and the sort of bad luck moment that he had during the Euros. Well, as I say, and I know that everybody listening to this will agree, it's great seeing Christian Eriksen back playing football. We're so pleased that he is alive and well, as we are for all of his family and friends. Um, so this means that all Premier League footballers would have had that moment where you take the wires off and it pulls your chest hair out. Absolutely, yeah. Is that why they all wax their chest, do you think? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> And so we arrive at my favourite part of the podcast. I know many of our subscribers feel the same. It is Dave's medical training. And this is kind of the start of a new term. As last week, well, it was a bumper edition. And it ended with me getting a B plus. You rewarded me with a certificate. 
I've stuck it on the fridge next to Evie's colouring in. Uh, and may I just say, I got a B plus, right? I'm pleased with that, right? But I got seven out of nine. Yeah. That is harsh that is grading. That's really good, right? It's tough grading. Yeah, that is really harsh grading. Yeah. But so, you know, you're giving me space but to improve, are Exactly. You? And don't forget, that's miles above a pass. And all you need is to get your medical degree, right? So it doesn't really matter if you get an A star or not, does it? That's the you spirit. You just need to become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you've got three more medical questions for me. I know you're playing along where you are. Neil, take it away. So, Dave, welcome to today's sets of uh, questions. So your first question is... Where in the body would you find synovial fluid? Is it A, your brain, B, your pancreas, or C, your knees? Synovial fluid. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I've noted it down. Have a think. Okay. Uh Then, your second question. If you were suffering from orthostatic hypotension, what would your symptoms be? Would they be A... Poor circulation in the hands and feet. B. A raised heart rate due to chronic stress. Or C. A lowered blood pressure due to standing up. What was the word again? Orthostatic hypotension. Just so you know, uh, Neil does unblinking eye contact when he says long words to me. (laughs) Really, it's quite erotic. (laughs) I'm just filling for time. I'm just flirting with you because I have no idea what the answer is. (laughs) Go through the three options. Good tactics. Go through the three options again. Sorry. I'm I'm in the zone now. Come on. All right. Come on, Doctor. Question two. Orthostatic hypotension. What would your symptoms be? Okay. A. Poor circulation in the hands and feet. B. A raised heart rate due to chronic stress. Or C. A lowered blood pressure due to standing up. Okay. Okay. So question three is an open-ended question. You have to describe what you're going to do here. So, Oh, no. Dave, I've got another imaginary minor medical emergency for you to deal with. Is it happening to Brooklyn Dan again? <sighs> Close, <laughs> but not quite. It's not Binfluence of Phil at number one, is it? <laughs> Almost. Okay. Even better. Okay. So this time, our mutual friend, Ozzy Eddie... <laughs> From down the road, you know him. Morning, morning, Eddie. Yeah, he's a great guy, great guitarist too. You spot Eddie returning home after being out on the local park run. I heard a rumour that you wanted to join park run, actually, Dave. Is that true? No. (laughs) Is that medical advice? (laughs) Okay, go on. So anyway, Ozzy Eddie's coming, returning home. He's obviously a fit guy, Australian bloke, wants to do his local park run. And he's being assisted by two people and he's clearly in some discomfort. He's hobbling and he's not able to put any weight on his right foot. Okay. As a medical student in training who's just received a B plus on your last review, he's over the moon to see you and very, very eager for you to assist him. Yeah. After a brief examination, you diagnose him with a sprained ankle. Okay. You don't think it's serious enough for him to visit the hospital, but what would your advice be for him to treat his sprained ankle? Okay. So Ozzy Eddie's been on the park run and he's sprained his ankle, poor chap. He's not going to be able to press the wah-wah pedal on the guitar. (laughs) And you need to work out how to get him back. Okay. Fix his ankle. I've got it. I've got my three answers. I hope you have too, because after this, Neil is going to reveal the answers. And this being another podcast from our wonderful producers. 
Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. 
carbon dioxide, the fluid helps supply oxygen to those areas, removes metabolic waste and keeps the cartilage around the healthy. Lovely stuff and a point. Marvellous. Very good. Okay, you ready for question two? Yeah. So question two is, you are suffering from orthostatic hypotension. Mm. What would your symptoms be? Orthostatic hypotension. Would it be A, poor circulation in the hands and feet? B, a raised heart rate due to chronic stress? Or Mm. C, a lowered blood pressure due to standing up? I... I've I've written B, but hearing it again, I'm going to change, and I'm going to change it to C. Very good. Is it? Yeah, I like your exam <laughs> technique. This is something I used to do in my exams too. <laughs> I had the I had a few questions where I would put a star and go, could be something, and I'll come back to it later. Yeah. And sometimes when you come back to it later, it becomes more logical for some reason. That's exactly what happened to yep. me just now. Yeah. And I've got another point. Very good. Overjoyed. Absolutely. So orthostatic hypotension the clue is really in the word right? yes so that's where you you came from when i re-emphasized it, it. kind of sunk that. in yes. hearing it again as part of the exactly. reveal so hypotension being low blood pressure hypo low and orthostatic is relating to standing yes so the the challenge so i mean humans are really really challenged by gravity fundamentally so the act of actually standing up is a huge challenge on our physiology so when you stand up, what wants that, what needs to happen or what gravity is trying to do is pull all your blood to your legs. If you pull all of your blood to your calves and your legs because gravity is pulling everything down, you've got not enough blood to your brain and you'll collapse, you'll faint. And all, in orthostatic hypotension, these patients often feel dizzy or struggle on standing. It's more common as we get older because those reflexes are lost, but can happen to some young patients as well. And unfortunately, what happens is basically the blood pools in the legs or in the lower limbs and not enough gets to your brain and you then start to feel faint. You start to want to pass out. And the act of fainting or the act of passing out is actually designed so that you then lay flat. Because once you then lay flat, your brain is at the same height as your heart. The blood goes back to your brain and then you you, you sort of wake up. Now that is a fascinating fact. And so when you see someone fainting, the most common thing that people do, I get this all the time in in patients, you know, a lady was in church and she fainted. She stood up and fainted. So we held her up and then she started fainting more, was unconscious or fitting sometimes. And the, the answer is don't hold the patient up. Actually let the patient's head go down. And in some cases, actually lift the legs up to allow the blood to drain back. Ah. And that will help patients recover. And I've actually seen patients diagnosed as seizures, for instance, because they just didn't get enough blood to their brain. And somebody was trying to hold them up while they're trying to faint. And their body's trying to compensate, but another human's trying to help them, but unfortunately in the wrong way. Well, firstly, uh, as always, Neil, that's fascinating. And secondly, it's not lost on me that effectively what you're saying is when there's ladies around you, they faint a lot. <laughs> that happens to you all the time, Ah, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it does, Neil. Right, what's the third one? That's okay. great, two points. Very good, you're doing amazing. I think this B-plus has really motivated you. Yeah. Okay, so question three is the open-ended one, always yeah. a bit harder. So this time, our mutual friend, Ozzy Eddie, the fit guy who likes to do a lot of running, has just been down to Park Run. And you see him, as you're walking past the bus stop, you see him, you know, being helped by two people. He can't put any f- weight on his right foot. And you, being a fantastic B-plus medical student, <laughs> have um, come to review him. He's so happy. He's thankful that you've been able to help him. And you've diagnosed a sprained ankle. You don't think it's serious enough to go to hospital, but what's your advice to get him back onto that wah-wah pedal? Um, it would be raise it up and ice pack. Very good. 
Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. That's exactly what you do. So three marks this week. You've done really well. So so the thing to remember is rice, R-I-C-E. So rest, ice. Uh, C is for compression. And uh, that means, you know, you may want to just put a bandage around that area and support it and also sort of allow the blood to not too tight to let the blood not flow, but enough to support the joint. And then E is obviously for elevation. And that's the sort of standard treatment for almost all injuries uh, initially until, you know, a couple of days. And then you can start gently trying to walk through a sprained ankle and trying to get the ligaments moving and all of that. Those trapped you know, bad damaged chemicals, etc., just to get out that joint by moving it. So rice is what you need to remember if, like Aussie Eddie, you have a fictional sprained ankle. So that's three out of three for me this week. I hope you did okay where you are. And of course, there'll be more medical training next time. And so it is time for today's burning question. And this one has arisen due to the events unfolding in Ukraine. Now, at the time of record, there are so many distressing images coming from Ukraine that we can see on our news feeds and hear on the radio and see online. And I wanted to send my love. I know that Neil does as well, as does everybody involved in The Doctor Next Door. We're sending our thoughts and our love to all of you guys out there. So, Doctor, the burning question is is how has war and conflict changed the face of medicine over the years? So, Dave, that's a really good question, and I echo your thoughts about the war in Ukraine. All of our thoughts and sympathies are with these tragic images that we're seeing uh, across our screens, and, you know, I think neither of us ever thought in our lives and in our children's lives that we'd have to face war in Europe again as we have before, and it's a sad thing of mankind that we've not learnt from the lessons of the past and... We're seeing the things that I thought were sort of set back to movies, really. A lot of medicine has been learnt from actual military practice. As we've talked about before, uh-huh. barber surgeons in the past were part of the military troop for things like amputations and operations. The Navy would often have a ship's doctor who was a you know, jack-of-all-trades from appendicitis to chopping your limb off to you know, treating viral fevers on, on boats. And certainly in terms of structures of hospital, you know, medicine itself is structured on the military. So a hospital was actually devised from things like Florence Nightingale's work in the Crimea, where she structured wards and saw people, you know, dying of infections because there wasn't sanitation, people weren't washing hands, and there wasn't an order to the ward. So a lot of actually how a hospital in medicine as a hierarchy is structured is based on medicine. I just thought I'd touch on a couple of, you know, incredible things that we still use in medicine thanks to what's occurred in I think in that's war. a good idea because this is such a broad topic. topic but, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'd be fascinated to know if there were three or four things that, that have come from war and conflict that, that yeah. are still being used in medicine today yeah. that were game changers. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the first thing to think about, there was a gentleman called Charles Drew and he was an American surgeon and a medical researcher and he was a pioneer in the field of blood transfusion. You know, blood transfusion is such a big thing even now But Charles Drew developed amazing techniques to store blood so that during the war we could transport blood to soldiers. When you look at the history of, for example, World War II, the survival rate of these injured soldiers is incredible. It's beyond what should happen given the the, monstrosity of the injuries that they face. And that's all down to some of the work that Drew did. One of the first things he did is he was able to separate blood. So he separates blood into 
you know, the blood cells that we use, the red blood cells which are used for oxygen and carrying around the body. But he was also able to separate into a component called plasma. That's the protein stuff within the blood. It makes up 55% of the volume of your blood. It's clear, straw-coloured, and it carries all of the other cells in it. It's like a matrix. And Drew was able to separate that and dry it so that in the field you could just add some water and then give plasma to patients. Wow. And one of the big things is blood loss, so you've got hypotension. We talked about orthostatic hypotension. These people are losing you know, litres of blood, and they're not perfusing their organs and dying, exsanguinating. And so you know, the ability to do that and resuscitate these patients through fluid, incredible in terms of what, what he's, he did, and the lives he saved through medicine, and also the ability to sort of learn about blood types and then transport you know, real blood to patients in the field in the field hospitals. The other one I think that's really interesting is a, a gentleman called Archibald uh, McKindo, and he, he rings very close to my heart still because during particularly the Battle of Britain but also during a lot of aircraft warfare, one of the really horrible things was that you know, these aircraft just blew up they were just, you know, flying engine with a load of petrol in it. And mm. these airmen were suffered with huge amounts of burns and dif- disfigurement. Their skin was basically torn apart. The skin was exposed. It would get, you know, infected and they would just die a very horrible, and painful death. And McKindo was just a pioneering surgeon, one of only four plastic surgeons practicing Britain before the war. And he was stationed in the RAF in East Grinstead, so near Gatwick, really. And... Uh, his patients became known as the guinea pig club. So he would basically just, you know, come up with ideas for skin grafts, for keeping the wound clean, for keeping the wound wet, regularly irrigating with saline, and also then trying to reconfigure these patients. You know, if you lost your nose or your face or half your, you know, ear and things, you were very disfigured. And he was trying to make them look normal again. The other thing I think that's really fantastic was about the nature of Mikindo. We've talked before about hierarchy, about behavioural characteristics. And one of the things McKindo did away with it was all of this, you know, I must dress in this way, you must call me Mr McKindo, etc. He was very down-to-earth with the patients. He used to go to the pub with the patients. And he also worked really hard with the community in East Grinstead. So he tried to reintegrate these people to give them their confidence because there's a huge amount of mental health aspects with disfigurement, mm. which are so important for these, you know, battle I- injuries. Yeah. And he was, you know, he understood the psychology and the other aspects to these patients to really help them, which is fantastic. So the other thing that's interesting about McKindo is he developed, you know, lots of instruments which are named after him. And ironically, I still use McKindo scissors in a lot of the operations and procedures I Ah. do. And so do many surgeons. So it's one of the most important pieces of kit, the McKindo scissors that he devised, to dissecting tissue and getting to the right planes where we operate. And um, I think the last thing that's worth mentioning is, is actually the fact that we also use companies. So there's a company in America, for instance, and they were able to work out a way to make a serrette. So a serrette basically is, looks like a little superglue. And they mass manufactured loads of those with a needle and a special thing that you'd pull out to make the needle usable. So it was a safety catch. And that had morphine in it. So you imagine all these patients with, you know, huge injuries and a lot of pain. One of the greatest things is all these soldiers and medics, they carried a bit of morphine, stick this morphine on them and relieve their pain, which was so important. Wow. 
Okay, so that's just some of the ways in which war and conflict have changed the face of medicine and just hearing some of those stories, just how um, rewarding it must have been to be able to bring those things to the fore and how something so positive can come from something so terrible. And once again, everybody here at The Doctor Next Door sends all of our love and thoughts to the people of Ukraine. The Doctor Next Door isn't just about Neil and myself. We love it when you get in touch and share not only your questions, but your stories as well. You can do that anytime you like. It's doctoratnextdoorpod.com. You can also find us on the socials if you like. It's docnextdoorpod. So let's have this week's correspondence, shall we, Neil? And it comes from Mark in East Yorkshire. Hello, Mark. He says, hi, guys. I was hoping you could shed some light on what I can only describe as the single most terrifying thing I've ever gone through. And Mark is talking sleep paralysis. Since I was little, I'm now 39, I've suffered from night terrors, seeing hallucinations attack me and trying to lash out in real life. But occasionally, they're accompanied by sleep paralysis, where my brain is awake, but my body isn't. I physically can't move a muscle and have to make myself breathe in a meditative state to snap out of it. Can you shed any light on what's happening inside my brain to make this happen? Thank you very much indeed, guys, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much indeed for getting in touch, Mark. So, night terrors, sleep paralysis... Why is this happening to Mark and so many other people across the globe? Thanks, Mark, for writing in. And again, really important that you share this with us because it's important that other people know that, you know, this is a common thing and this is something that, you know, worries them. And I think they'll appreciate that you write in about it. The first thing to say about sleep paralysis is that it's generally harmless. So most people only get it once or twice in their life. Some people tend to get it more often. And it tends to occur as you are waking or more commonly when you're falling asleep. And what happens is that you cannot move or speak. So you're awake, but you can't move any of your body. You can't speak, you can't open your eyes and you feel like someone's in the room or something's pushing you down. It can be really frightening. Yeah, wow. The main reasons and triggers for that are often actually related to sleep in general. So sleep, a lot of people have difficulty with sleep and sleep hygiene is a term that I talk about where you have a routine and try and get a regular night's sleep. But poor sleep, insomnia, disturbed sleep patterns, particularly shift work or jet lag can contribute to this. And also, you know, if you're having anxiety or panic or family history of these kind of things, those are sort of triggers. What's really happening is your brain is falling asleep. So parts of your brain are kind of shut down, completely asleep, and it's telling the body, okay, right, you're not going to move any of, you know, your arms or limbs or anything else. But there's another part of your brain which says, okay, um, I'm still awake, I'm still conscious, and it's in that in-between phase. And I think the key thing really uh, with Mark is to reassure him that it's harmless. It can also be linked a little bit with night terror, so it's a similar sort of concept. So night terror is probably a lot of our audience are more familiar with. It's kind of the stuff that, you know, our kids experience, about 40% of children, and a smaller proportion of um, adults will experience sleep terrors. And again, they are related to the aspect of sleep and wake. So often people will wake up suddenly from their sleep, their sleep is deserved, and they'll begin, you know, frightened or be shouting, stare wide awake. And it'll be related to something often they can't even remember that's occurring in their dream. But part of their brain is awake and uh, allowed them to sort of become semi-conscious and allowed them to sort of walk around or move or talk. 
You had a horrifying experience at medical school, didn't you, Neil? That's right. Yeah. So Your roommate. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. Well, my my best man actually, um, John and I had the joy of sharing a room in in medical school. So we had one dorm room, and there were two beds and two desks. And uh, the first night, obviously, you know, you go to medical school, you try and bond. You thought, okay, let's go to the pub together. Let's get you know realise if we like each other. I knew I liked him straight away because I looked under his bed and he had a copy of the White Album and I thought, <laughs> you, you'll do fine with me. Yeah, um, But then we were, I was sleeping and the next thing, he didn't tell me about the night terrors and I was sleeping and he, he, I looked up and there's these eyes glaring at me and this man coming towards my sort of, you know, my neck as if he's about to strangle me. Wow. And I couldn't wake him up. Couldn't for the life of me just make him wake up and make sense. So he was kind of asleep. And this was all part of his dream. Something was happening. He was using his muscles and his eyes and things to walk around the room, but fully asleep fundamentally from a sort of consciousness point of view. So you're weighing up, is he going to be a best man? On one hand, he's a Beatles fan, yes. but the night terrors are quite frightening uh, but, but, for everyone. The other, exactly. Well, on the first night, I thought, well, on the other hand, he could be a you know, serial killer or something. <laughs> um, Mark, listen, thank you for getting in touch. I think the reason that I, I wanted Neil to share that story is that, as he said, these are quite common. You're not alone. I know that doesn't make it any less frightening. And particularly the world in which we've lived for the last few years has been a really scary place. We've already touched on what we're seeing from Ukraine. And it makes it it makes it difficult for us to turn off our brains. Absolutely. And, you know, everyone's got stuff going on in their lives. But, Mark, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not the doctor here, but my advice to you would be try and get that routine going. Try and calm calm yourself, the breathing techniques, maybe some nice chamomile tea or whatever it is it takes. Yeah. Get the room dark and just yeah. try and relax into it and try and empty your mind, however you go about doing that. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, Devin. Obviously, with your shift work and things, you'll know, right, the importance of going to bed early or on time get the room dark get a good night's sleep uh so mark thank you very much indeed for getting in touch with that we really do appreciate it and good luck going forwards and of course you can get in touch anytime you like as i say our email address is doctor at nextdoorpod.com and it's ready and waiting for you And that's it for this episode of Doctor Next Door. As ever, thank you to my regular co-host and next door neighbour, Dr Neil Srinivasan. Next time, Dr Neil will again be guiding me through the medical world. I'll have another burning question and we'll be answering more of your questions too. Please rate, review and subscribe from wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you know a doctor, a nurse or a medical professional who you think might enjoy what you've just heard, then please do let them know. Now... All this talk of sleep, I'm off for a nap. So I mean it's in the nicest possible way. But please, get out of my house. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Ando. And I'm Fer. And we host Niñas Bien Podcast. We want to invite you to listen to our show. Niñas Bien means good girls in Spanish. But you have to know that this is not a podcast for good girls. Or for girls at all. It is a comedy podcast. So everyone is welcome to listen. We talk about sex, relationships, technology. We recommend movies and TV shows and discuss pop culture in general. And there is Chisme Ajeno too. A section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español, vamos, vamos a, a ser tus, tus nuevas amigas. amigas. 
We'll be your friends for the non-Spanish speakers. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Hosted by Acast and available to all audio platforms. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com